Then the Pharisees went and plotted against him, how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do, you do not care about anyone's opinion if you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the taxes. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. That same day, the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As far as the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Maybe seated. Right. Well, this will be fun. Well, uh, again, good morning. Welcome. My name is Nathan. Um, I'm the uh, campus pastor here. It's good to be uh, together. Thanks for joining us. Thanks also for those of you who uh, have come joining us from our, our Shawnee Mission campus. That's one of the challenges of meeting in a school. School's closed for the weekend. That includes church uh, if you meet at, at, a, at a school. So uh, thank you to those of you who are here. We're glad to see you, uh, see old friends in this space with us. Uh, let, me, let me pray and, and we'll jump in. Uh, to God's word this morning. God, we are so grateful that you, uh, that you speak to us. God, that you continue to reach out through your spirit uh, to us and through your word because of, because of your son. So God, I, I pray that as we gather this morning, we would hear uh, what we need to hear. God, that you would, um, yeah, let us, let us see ourselves in these words, in these ancient stories. And God, even more importantly, let us see how beautiful Jesus is and help us to pursue him and to love him more than anything else. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we all, we all tend to imagine Jesus in our corner, don't we? I mean, of course, when I, when I say that, this is, this is what I think of. Um, sorry in advance. I mean, the things we Christians make, it's like, what? I just don't even understand. I have so many questions like, uh, who is that painting for, uh, first of all? Like, why is Jesus a boxer? Who's he going to fight? I mean, why is he so ripped? I mean, I, I mean there's just like, I have, so many, I have so many questions seeing this. That, that's, that's not exactly what I mean by, by using, using that phrase. And, and yet, we all sort of like to believe that the big guy's on our side, right? I mean, don't we? I mean, whether, whether you're a Christian or not, we all sort of imagine that if there's a God, well, of course he agrees with me. I mean, at least most of the time, doesn't he? He has to. He's God and I'm me, right? I mean, it, it's especially convenient in, in a world as, as divided as ours, isn't it? 
I mean, even just think about like how divided we really are. Reed mentioned that, you know, this, this weekend we're, we're honoring, we're celebrating the life of Martin Luther King Jr. And, and yet we look around our world and we know, we know how divided we are, how far we have to go. Or even, even just think about like, you know, on Friday we get a new president, right? I mean, no, we're not, we're not divided a bit, are we, as a people? Are you kidding? But, but, you know, Jesus is on my side, right? I mean... I'm sure he'd have voted for whoever I voted for. And I'm sure that he would have the same assumptions about race that I have. And, and I'm sure every time Kelly and I get in an argument that, that he's, on, he's on my side. I mean, I'm a pastor, right? I've got one of his favorites, aren't I? I mean, we, we assume these things. He likes all the same things I like. He hates all the same people I hate. Super convenient, this God, isn't he? Whatever it is, I imagine Jesus in my corner. I mean, what good is God if he doesn't agree with me? Right? And if he, if he doesn't, then we can just sort of twist his words. I'm sure he didn't mean that, right? Or, or ignore them. I'm sure he didn't mean me. Or we can just do what they did and, and crucify him already. For 2,000 years, we've been doing this to Jesus. Kind of feel bad for the guy, don't you? And even right here in his final week, everybody's trying to force him into a a corner. Get him on on their side. And if they can't get him on their side, at least figure out a way to dispose of him quickly. And Jesus refuses to play nice. He will not be manipulated or controlled or ignored. And whether it's the religious leader's of his day, or it's you and me sitting right here this morning, the message of these stories is clear. Jesus will not fit into your corner. Jesus will not fit into your corner. I don't don't care what your your corner is, honestly. I mean, your political party, your, your, your race or nationality, your likes, dislikes, personality, preferences, sexual identity. I mean, you name it, whatever it is, Jesus will not fit into your corner. We have to fit into his. All right, that sounds fun, right? Uh, so we've been studying Matthew. Uh, we're finally uh, in the, the last week of Jesus. It's the most important week in, in human history. And, and, and we're walking through the events that lead to his death. And, and last week, if you're here, you remember Jesus condemned the religious leaders, right? And they hate him for it. Like, it's, it's no wonder, like, we know where this story's going. It's no wonder watching it, reading it, why it leads to that, that place. They hate him for it. And so here in these stories, they ask him two of the most heated questions of that day. Questions for us that maybe just leave us kind of confused. But for them, these questions matter a big deal. Uh, and questions in their minds, they, they phrase them in such a way, they've come up with them in such a way, where they're convinced that no matter how Jesus answers... He's either going to force them into their corner or into the opposing corner, but it doesn't really matter as long as they get to crucify him. They're trying to get rid of him. And we, we sort of do the same. I mean, at the very least, maybe it's not with our questions to Jesus, but we make, we make these assumptions, don't we? Surely he agrees with me. I mean, it's kind of like mirror, mirror on the wall, Right? And and for some of us, if we're honest, like you only want Jesus as long as he gives you your answer. Sure, you can date him. No, you don't have to be generous. 
Of course you voted for the right person. Nah, you're not a racist. I mean, whatever it is, right? Know your sins, they're not that big of a deal. But Jesus, he, he takes these two questions. He recognizes their traps, their categories, and he completely blows them out of the water because Jesus fits into no corner. And we'll see three things as we walk through this text this morning. That Jesus, he won't fit into your kingdom. Jesus won't fit into your idea of love. And Jesus won't fit into your life. We have to fit into his. First, Jesus won't fit into our kingdom. Whatever our our little kingdoms are, he's not going to fit, right? I mean, he invites us into his, and we see that in chapter 22, or beginning in verse 15. We heard it, we heard it read, but, but here essentially is the first trap. There's these two traps. Here's the first one. Is Jesus in the corner with the Romans, like the oppressors, or with the rebels, the ones who want to overthrow the Romans? I mean, essentially, is, is Jesus going to be hated by the Jews, his own people, or is he going to be hated by by the Romans, the, the wicked oppressors, the powerful. I mean, either way, it feels like bad news for Jesus, right? No matter how he answers. Unless, verse 15, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Okay, so we've got the Pharisees and the Herodians here. I don't know if we've talked about the Herodians so far. I don't think we have. Uh, but these are, these are two groups that essentially, they mean nothing to us. Uh, we, we don't necessarily know who they are right off the gate. Maybe the Pharisees, but definitely not the Herodians. But let me just tell you, these two groups hate each other. Both are Jewish. But the, the Pharisees, on, on the one hand, they're, they're the law keepers. They're the religious. And, and they are absolutely 100% convinced that the Roman oppressors are destroying their way of life, their ability to worship God. That, that the, I mean, they're, they're the worst enemy imaginable. The Herodians, on the other hand in support of King Herod, that helps. They're the, the Jewish sympathizers with the Romans. They believe in working together. I mean, sort of think about it like these are the, these are the, you know, the Nazi sympathizers during World War II. That's what's happening here, okay? I mean, you think Republicans and Democrats hate each other. These two groups, they, they are mortal enemies, and yet they hate Jesus enough to let by, bygones be bygones for a few moments and try to trap him up in his words. That's how much people hate Jesus. So after, after doing their best to butter him up and flatter him and say all these nice things about Jesus, which they don't mean any of, um, they ask their loaded question, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, if Jesus says no in the Pharisees' corner, he's inciting rebellion and insurrection and the Romans will quickly quickly destroy him. If he says, yes, pay taxes in the Herodians corner, uh, he's going to alienate his own people, right? I mean, he's going to end up siding with his, their, their victimizers. And then to top it all off, the coin used for the tax was considered idolatrous. Like it was even just a despised piece of money. It was called the denarius. Got a picture of it here. That's a picture of, of, of Tiberius Caesar. And, and on it, the inscription, it, it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the god Augustus. Which, if you know the Jewish people, this is not, this is not good, right? This does not work for them, especially for the Pharisees. This is absolutely abhorrent. It's sort of like if, I mean, you can imagine, right? If our, if our money said, in Trump we trust, 
be unsettling for more than a few reasons, wouldn't it? And Jesus here really is the Son of God. And so they come to him like, oh, Jesus, we just don't know what to do. Will you, will you advise us, right? And you got to love Jesus because he knows what's going on, right? And, and so he, he responds to them. To Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Then they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, well, I mean, it's kind of like, well, duh. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And give to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. He's not going to play by their rules. But, I mean, basically what he, what he says there is, is, yes, respect your pagan government, right? It's pagan, but respect it. Pay taxes, do your civic duty, be good citizens. But don't forget for a moment who's really in charge here. And honestly, reading this, I, I kind of feel like he'd probably tell, tell us the same, right? I mean, because some of us, were so disillusioned with politics in our country and the, and the mess that it is that we, we almost want to like just completely check out. We don't want to do, have anything to do with it. And Jesus said, this is not an option, right? Like there's, there's a role that Caesar plays in our lives in this world. It's not an option to check out. Of course, others of us are, are so eager to join whoever happens to align with our ideology that will unite ourselves to even the most shocking person, right? As long as he or she might possibly preserve our way of life for a little bit longer. It's not really an option either. We give Caesar his due, sure, but we give God more. And, and this, this means, like, at the very least, at the end of the day, when it comes to, to politics, whatever it is, I'm probably wrong. I mean, at least in part. Like, that's what, that's what Jesus really said. Like, you're both wrong. Like, neither of you get this right, he's saying to them. No, no matter what it is, when it, when it comes to us, for our politics, any matter of ideology or power structure, however you want to, like, sum it up, no matter what you think, no matter which side you're on, Jesus is not in your corner. But we're always, always welcome to jump into his. I mean, we said it all throughout our series in Daniel this past fall, right? That we have incredible responsibilities living in Babylon, seeking the good of all, longing for flourishing, being engaged in, in every, every bit of, of life in, in a pagan world. But there is a better kingdom coming and we cannot forget. Jesus won't fit into our little kingdoms. We have to fit into his. I'm guessing some of us are feeling a little riled up right now, right? As soon as you mention politics, like we all just get like angry and tense and ready to explode, right? I, I get that. I mean, imagine, imagine what Jesus felt, right? Knowing that he's saying these things that are are absolutely, in just a couple of days, going to lead to him hanging on a cross. Of course, we're just getting warmed up here, too. Because if you're, if you're mad at Jesus' view of power, you're going to love his view of love. Not really, actually. Uh, that's the second thing. Jesus won't fit our idea of love. 
He won't fit our idea of love. Now, this is, this is a particularly hard one um, because the question that they're asking uh, is not a question that we ask, not typically, not, not in the same way they do, but the way that Jesus answers raises all kinds of questions for us 21st century American listeners, right? We walk away with very different questions. And so, so their question is, basically, Jesus isn't believing in an afterlife, isn't it just kind of ridiculous? Like, it's a fairy tale. It's done, right? And, and yes, we wrestle with that uh, in, in various ways as, as a people, uh, but it's, that's, that's not where, like, if you're listening to what, what Jesus said, that's not where we really get hung up, is it? Most of us hear the words and we're like, wait, 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 slow down. What do you mean marriage isn't going to last forever? What, 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 what do you mean that romantic love and sex isn't the end-all experience of, of humankind? It's a different issue than what they were dealing with. But it's one for most of us when we hear it. It's absolutely where we get sucked in. Because we all have different idols, don't we? Every culture. And so we, we have to address this a little bit differently. So picture the scene. It's the same day. Uh, Matthew is, is very clearly pushing these stories together, showing us uh, that, you know, this one after the other, Jesus is being attacked, right? Trying to be forced into, into somebody else's corner. And so now it's the Sadducees' turn to try to either rope Jesus in or trip him up. And the Sadducees, they're another class of the religious, religious uh, elite of, of sort of Judaism. Um, but they're a little bit different. Like they're a little bit on kind of the edge theologically, maybe on the more progressive or liberal side or however you want to think about that in, in theological terms. They're a little bit off, off to the left, so to speak. Uh, for example, Matthew tells us, they don't believe in the resurrection. Meaning they don't believe that there's an afterlife, that there's like when you're dead, you're dead. That's what they believe. Which would have been, you know, contrary to Old Testament thought, as well as contrary to what, you know, any sort of Jewish sort of theologian in that day, in that culture would have believed. And so they're, they're kind of off to the, to the side, but they also uh, want to, to trip Jesus up. And so they ask him a question um, that, like for us, just doesn't even make sense, right? They ask him about this pretty obscure Jewish law about, about marriage. Um, basically, like back then, um, it was regulated that if your, if your husband died, um, then you could marry your, your brother-in-law. It actually was supposed to happen. Um, your dead husband's brother, okay? So weird, right? Some of you are going to spend the rest of the time thinking about your brother-in-law, which is weird as well. Um, either you're going to be like, Ugh, or you're going to be, well, whatever. Don't. We don't need to go there. Um, it's, it's so weird to us, Right? Like, we don't function that way. But for them, I mean, this was a, a normal sort of thing. And it was meant in that day, you're talking ancient culture here, as a protection both to the deceased husband and to the widow. Okay, and so it was, it was a protection to the husband because this meant that his name, his line could continue, that he could actually have children through his brother and an inheritance. And, and for them in that culture, I mean, that is everything, right? Your life is only as good as those who come after you, culturally. But also for, for the widow, I mean, again, think, we're thinking ancient culture, there's not a lot of options for women back then. And, and for a widow in particular, you could move back in with your parents if they were still alive at that point. Or you could become a prostitute. Or you could live in abject poverty. I mean, that's that's kind of it, okay? Um, and regardless of what you chose, without children to care for you when you are older, there's no one for you. This was meant... I mean, it's weird for us, but it was meant, it was meant as a protection. And so the Sadducees, they pick up on this, this obscure little Old Testament law, uh, and they bring it to Jesus, and they say, well, let's just, let's just say 
she marries this guy and he dies and then she marries his brother. And he dies. And so she marries the third brother and, and then he dies and then she marries the fourth brother and then he dies and then the fifth and the sixth and the seventh. I mean, first of all, step one, like stay away from this woman, right? I mean, that's like, that's the obvious application. She is not to be trusted. Um, either bad luck or just downright malicious. Um, and, and so, so they, they, they say to Jesus then, in the afterlife, the resurrection Jesus, whose wife will she be? Number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, six, number seven. I mean, surely not all of them, right? I mean, they're trying to push Jesus either into agreeing and be like, yeah, the resurrection doesn't make sense. Or, or saying something that, that would have been like really, really culturally offensive. Yeah, she's going to live happily ever after with seven husbands, right? I mean, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't work. And so Jesus, again, he's not going to play. In verse 29, Jesus answered them, you idiots. That's, that's my translation. Um, but I mean, that's kind of the tone, right? Jesus answered, you're wrong. Like, what are you thinking? You know, neither the scriptures, okay, what the Old Testament already said about these things, nor the power of God, what he is able to do. Like you're, you're, you're limiting him. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. All right, real fast here. He doesn't say we become angels, okay? That's not something we believe, so get that out of your sort of theology. No, nowhere in scripture is there indicated that we're gonna grow wings and carry around harps and have halos, okay? That's not, that's not what, he's, what he's saying. Um, in fact, most, most scholars and commentators would say that actually what Jesus is probably kind of doing here is kind of kicking the Pharisees a little bit more um, in love, right? Because the Sadducees, they also didn't believe in angels, so any sort of spiritual being was just completely out of, out of their, their rubric. And so Jesus is like, he's using this as an example to say, like, we don't even speak the same language, people. Like, you're, you're so far in your own agenda. You have no, we, we can't even dialogue about this. And so he, he kind of goes to them as an example, saying that, yes, we're not going to become angels, but we'll have similar characteristics. Namely, that marriage, sex, romantic love, will one day be no more. Which, I mean, if we're honest, makes some of us wonder if this is a place we really want to go, doesn't it? I mean, like I said, every culture has its own idols, different at different times and different places, and this clearly is one of ours. The idea of romantic love and everything that comes along with it. And we've talked about this. If, if God has effectively been evicted from our culture, and the only thing left we have to be transcendent is this human love. Like it's, it's the only transcendent experience that we have left. It is everything for us. And this is exactly why you can't tell someone who they can and cannot love, right? Or who they can and cannot marry. It's, it, it's, it's why, it's why for, for many, right? The idea, the very thought of waiting to have sex until you're married is just laughable for many. It's why divorce is so commonplace. I mean, Let's be honest, if you fall out of love, it's your inalienable right to go find somebody else who will give you that experience of transcendence. At least for a while, isn't it? That's why we move from partner to partner. It's, it's why um, we're willing to date someone with a completely different set of beliefs or values. It's because she gives you more transcendence than God does. I mean, many, many have even observed that even the, the way that we talk about love is radically different from other cultures. 
uh, like historically as well as cultures around the world. The way we even talk about it is so different. For others, I mean, love is, is defined as self-giving. It's, it's at its core sacrificial and, and committed that it exists for the sake of, of the other. But for us, I mean, if we're honest, right, being in love is less about any commitment and more about the way that person makes me feel, isn't it? I mean, it's even been said that when we say I'm falling in love, what we typically mean is this other person makes me feel really good about myself, if we're honest. Which, like, if you actually think about it, should be deeply unsettling, right? I mean, it's, it's entirely narcissistic. And I'm not, I'm not down on love. I love love. And I bought into this just, just alongside all of you, right? And I have, I truly believe I have the very best of human loves. I love my wife. We, we are matched well together. I have, a, I have an awesome marriage with her. And yeah, and she's, she's incredible. I don't like what Jesus says here about it any more than you do. But not because Jesus is wrong, but because I am. Because I've subscribed to the same idolatry that our culture has that worships love and sex above all things else, right? That believes that it's the only place we can experience something transcendent. And Jesus won't fit into our corner. Whatever you, whatever you tend to think about love, a good rule of thumb is just to remember that it's probably wrong. I mean, at least in part. That Jesus' idea of love is radically different from what we approach in our, in our culture. I mean, for, for marriage, according to Jesus, marriage, romance, sex, I mean, if you think about the, the entire rubric of Scripture about those things, those things, are, they're just temporary. They're not meant to be permanent. You see, it's all meant to be a metaphor. This is why marriage is so important. Marriage exists to tell the story of God. It doesn't exist for you or for me. Not ultimately. I mean, there are benefits with, with being married and, and love and pleasure and, and companionship and, uh, and the good of society and, and children and all those kinds of things. But ultimately, really, marriage exists to tell the story of God. The passion, the commitment, the sacrifice, the transcendence of the way our God loves us. This is why divorce or really any other distortion is so disastrous. It betrays the story. It, it hijacks it and tries, I mean, it tries to tell something else with it. Marriage exists to tell the story of God. And in the afterlife, heaven, we won't need the metaphor anymore. We'll have the reality. And I don't think that means that Kelly and I are going to be strangers when we get there, but that our love will look different, that its purpose will have been fulfilled. And it'll be okay. It's heaven, right? And God is there. And if you think about it, if, if it's transcendence that we're really chasing, right? If, if, if it's the feeling of being eternally loved, no matter what, committed to by, by another who, who's worthy and, and beyond worthy on our behalf, pursuing us. If, if our desire is, is for pleasure like we've never before experienced, all that these other things have been pointing to I mean, will finally be ours. Romantic love is the appetizer. The feast is yet to come. And this should give us real hope, shouldn't it? I mean, even hope now, because I mean, for some of you, like if you're in a lousy marriage, there's hope here because you're mar- it's not going to last forever. 
that the brokenness, the pain that you experience, that, that one day God is going to make it right. Or if you're, if you're single and you don't want to be, or, or maybe, maybe you struggle with same-sex attraction and you've chosen to honor God with your life through celibacy and you know the hardships ahead of you, the loneliness. Like this, this means that, that one day in, in ways that I can't even possibly imagine or begin to experience, that one day whatever we've lost, whatever we've given up, whatever we've missed out on, he is gonna, he's going to make up for it even more so. Then instead, of, we're missing the metaphor, but what we get is the reality with Jesus. And even for those of us who do happen to have the very best of human loves, right, and I consider myself most blessed, but even if you have that, if you've lived long enough, you probably also recognize that it's just not enough. Not really. I mean, even as good as it is, it's, it doesn't, it still leaves me longing for more. Like Kelly can't satisfy every, every bit of what's going on inside of my soul as much as I try to make her do that for me. Whether you're married or single, if you're looking for any other human to complete you, to fulfill your ultimate desires and your needs, you will be disappointed. But there's hope. There's hope because not only will it get better, for those who are with Christ, it, it will. It'll get better, but there's hope in the church because we're designed to be a family now that we're to be a taste of this kind of love, the love that's to come. Don't try to cram Jesus into your narrow definition of love. He's just not gonna fit. But he invites us into his and it's better. Okay, so he won't he won't fit into our politics. He won't fit into our loves. And finally, he won't even fit into our lives. Like he's not, he's not into being your hobby or, or even a, your habit. That when we come to Jesus, he wants absolutely everything. He doesn't fit into our lives, but he invites us into his. Because maybe for some of you, the question that you're asking, and this is, this is the right question for some of us. Like, what gives him the right? Right? I mean... Maybe you can understand, like, okay, yeah, so Jesus isn't going to cram into my way of life, my, my cultural expectations. He's, he's not going to fit my own proclivities or, or, or whatever. I, I get that. But why on earth should I submit mine to his? Why should I fit into his? Which is why the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians all end up walking away from Jesus, wanting nothing to do with him. That option is available for all of us. We can walk away. But it's what we've seen all throughout Matthew. That if this is who Jesus is, if he really is the creator and the sustainer of everything, if, if he is the one who heals the sick and walks on water and calms the storm and raises the dead, if, if, if he's the, the brilliant one, right, who, who responds here to the Pharisees. I mean, I love how he, how he responds here. In verse 31, he says, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Meaning that he has made a way for us to live forever. Forgiven and whole, welcomed into his kingdom, which, which is better, into his love, which is stronger, into, in his, into his life. And it, it never ends. And if, if this is what he's offering us, shouldn't we at least ask I mean, if, 
If it's true that he won't fit into our corner, our agenda and cultural expectations, our identities, whatever it is, this is the question that we should ask. How do we, how do we fit into his? How, how do I get to a place that I can align with him? I'm glad you asked, um, by the way. Um, first, we've got three things here. First, um, if you want to get into his corner, you have to admit that you have limitations. Like a lot of them. Like, it just begins flat out by admitting that, that my corner, your corner, whatever it is, it's probably wrong. Right? At, le- at least in part, that none of us see the world perfectly. Right? That we all get part of the story wrong. That, that we all have cultural blinders. Right? Like, we just, we grow up in this culture, so we assume so many things are just normal, that this is the way humans live, and it's right. And, and what it really is, it's just a manifestation of living in the 21st century America. We assume that our approach to power and love and everything else are the right ones. And then also, you know, you got to add sin to the mess, right? Because what the heart wants, the mind justifies, doesn't it? I mean, I even, I'm even compelled with this, thinking about like these first century hot button issues for them. Because you read them, you're like, really, that's it? Like that's what they're concerned about? And yeah, I mean, we have some overlap and some things to talk through with that. But like, what that says to me is like, how quickly cultures change, right? I mean, something that they dealt with that was everything for them, that everybody knew these questions and knew why these questions were so important. Like, I mean, it's just so foreign to us. And I mean, it makes me, it makes me wonder, like, what are the things um, for your, your great-great-grandparents, okay, that they believed, thought, said, or did that you would be absolutely horrified about right now? I mean, ashamed, embarrassed by, right? Their views of, of race and, and gender, the, the things that they believed, truly believed about how the world ought, ought to work. I mean, there's, there's, there's plenty of them, right? As a culture, that's just like a couple generations. And so like, what, what are your great-great-grandchildren gonna look back and think, man, what was their deal, right? I mean, what are they gonna be embarrassed by? What are they gonna be ashamed of? And what, the, what this says to me is we, we are so culturally limited, you and I. It's ever-changing. Every corner that you and I decide to put our stake in, right? It's so futile. It's fleeting. I mean, maybe it'll, it'll outlast us, but it's not going to outlast everything, right? We need someone else speaking into our lives. Someone who sees the whole picture, who, who isn't bound by time and culture, who doesn't just see things through the narrow lens of 21st century, American, white, male, middle class, whatever, whatever sort of categories that are so, so limited. We need Jesus. Admit your limitations. Second, second, ask honest questions, which is not what's happening in these stories, right? But, but for us, if we, if we actually want to get into his corner, we have to ask honest questions and get to know him. I mean, the questions here, they are manipulative. They are self-serving. They are meant to destroy. And so, of course, Jesus is like pushing back and pushing hard, isn't he? But if you are sincerely asking, I'm convinced he'll answer you. If you genuinely want to know him, you will. Are you asking good questions? Questions not meant to pat you on the back make you feel better about yourself or, or to, you know, to affirm decisions that you've already made. Right? We do that, don't we? God, what do you want me to do about this thing that I already decided I'm going to do? Um, like, but if we're actually asking questions, even, even knowing that if we do, he's going to challenge you, 
mean, like going to church to listen even when it hurts? Or joining a small group of people who see the world different from you and it's going to get uncomfortable at times? Taking, taking time even just daily to, on your own to pray, to, to read the Bible. I mean, this, this is how we ask good questions of God and get good answers. Do you do that? I mean, if you're, if you're new to the, to the Bible, um, a simple place to start is our open here Bible reading plan. It's really easy. You can sign up online. Uh, we'll send you in your email inbox uh, daily a passage of scripture to read that all kind of points towards the, the sermons for that week. It's a really, really easy way to jump in if you're, if you're brand new to, to scripture. And even, even if that, that describes you, and you're like, yeah, but the Bible is a, like, it's intimidating. Like, how do, you, how do you understand it? How do you get something out of it? Um, let me just say, we have a, a class coming up in a couple weeks here. Um, it's an essentials class on how to read the Bible. And it is designed for, like, for that question, like, how do I get started? Um, this book is foreign to me. How do I read it well? Um, and so I'd encourage you, please come to that. Um, it's coming up on a couple weeks on a, on a Saturday. Um, but we'd love to have you. It's designed to help us get started and read it well so that we can ask honest questions. Okay, so admit your limitations. Ask honest questions. And last, the hardest one. Yeah, definitely the hardest. You have to want him more. Like it always gets to our hearts eventually, doesn't it? Because you can have all the answers or think you do. You can even see your limitations, but if you don't want him more, then it's just not gonna care. It doesn't matter. And maybe if you're not there yet, maybe a better way of saying it is like want him more or at least want to want him more. Like I feel like that's probably where I live more often than not. Like I, I want to want him more. Jesus, help me want you more. To want, to want him more than being right or being successful or being in charge or getting my way. To, to want him more than being comfortable or being in a relationship. More than, just, more than just getting the answer that you want. You have to believe that Jesus is better. Better than your politics better than the very best of human love, better than, better than romance and, and sex and, and, and family and better, better than all things. Whatever, whatever agenda we bring him, that he's better. Which means that even when you disagree with him, because you will, probably often, even when you absolutely hate what he has to say, because you will, right? Because he confronts every culture and every kind of sinner he speaks into. You're not gonna like everything that he says. Even when, even when he tells you what to do and you, you don't want to do it, even then you choose to say, you know what though? In this scenario, I'm, I'm the one who's wrong, right? And he's worth it and he's better. Because none of these other things can die for your sins. None of these other things can conquer the grave for you, can offer you life and wholeness and forgiveness. No other kingdom compares to this one. No love is as strong or complete. No savior so worth following. No, no, we cannot cram him onto our side. But I mean, honestly, aren't you kind of relieved that that's true? I mean, I know it'd be convenient, but like at the end of the day, aren't you glad that our God is not so flimsy, so culturally bound that we get to tell him what to do and who to agree with and how to pat us on? I mean, aren't you, aren't you glad we cannot cram him on our side. And yet he stands with open arms, ready to welcome us to his. So let's, let's join him. Let's pray. Oh, God, easier said than done. God, would you help us see how, how little we see, honestly. 
of who we are and the world around us, how, how culturally and time-bound our views and opinions are, the questions that we ask, the, the things that we want that we think are most important. God, I pray that you'd help us to understand um, that we are so limited. And God, in our limitations, I pray that you would draw us to you, not to just more guesswork or, or to the wrong voices speaking into what matters in our lives, but God, I pray that we would ask you questions that's, that are truly seeking for truth, for hope, for wholeness. And God, help us to want you more. Help us to want to want you more. To believe that you really are better. God, we can't do this on our own, and so we pray that you would do it in us. Praise in Christ's name.